test. One, two, three, four. Welcome to week two, myth, ritual, and symbolism. Today is September 6th, um, Tuesday. I should be doing this on Monday. I'm not. I did this on Monday and it was an hour and a half long, so I'm going to try to tighten this up tonight. I am Don Panconian and... I've got a lot of things to say to you. You problem posed. Uh, you're thinking with my podcast, also with the article by the lecture by Toni Morrison and the selections from the book by Hanif Abdurraqib, Little Doubtful in America, were, were fantastic. Um, I'm going to use those questions that you asked to drive the majority of what I cover here. I thought I'd start by telling you some of the themes that I picked out from your questioning those themes that seem to me especially prominent in your asking um, and in your pushing back and in your pushing for more had to do with one perspective or something in anthropology we call cultural relativity we might also call this the advantage or problem of seeing from where we stand another theme was language too um, is language really ours are we just inheritors of it? What does it mean for language to be living? If it's living, is it also dying, etc.? I'm going to tell you right away up front, I um, have a lot to say about language and I'm going to save that. So for the few of you that asked language related questions this week, I'm going to save that for a week when we talk really explicitly about language and the construction of power. Um, three, Third theme, human nature, a couple of you asked questions that sounded more or less like this. Why do humans seem universally to do X? And so I will answer those questions uh, as, as, as best I can and say to you here that what you should know about me, that as a social scientist, um, is that I privilege the nurture in the nurture versus nature debate. So you'll get a sense of that tonight and also as this course progresses. I'm aware that I have that bias and I try to correct for it, but um, but it's there. Four, fourth major theme, this one really surprised me, the number of you that commented on Hanif's writing style. So I'll come back to that too and say just a few words. Five, of course, you've got really great questions that get us digging into the texts. Um, more importantly, I think that get us thinking across those texts. And here's where I can say to you that almost always when I curate content in a course for a week, I'm looking for sources that by being combined lead us somewhere else so and maybe even somewhere new you you will see this in this week week two's content on quote unquote primitivism and you saw this last week too shawnee i thought i'd open with some of your words because you pointed this out really nicely up front in your question you began immediately with, quote, both of these readings use dead birds as metaphors and the birds are in hands. What do these mean? Let's come back to that too. Of course, many of you asked questions about the birds. I, when I was working through this last night, I was laughing because the number of you also that asked questions like, did it have to be a bird? Um, 
Bennett, you said, what if it was a squirrel or a mouse? Audrey, you opened with, does it have to be a bird? And then Joseph, you had a re related question too. You, you left me smiling last night. Those questions, I think they sound playful at first, especially the, what if it was a squirrel or a mouse? But in fact, they force us to think immediately about symbols as local knowledge, as, as cultural knowledge. Um, here's where I can say to you really quickly, close your eyes and think. I'm going to say bird to you and you're going to think right now about all of the things that pop into your head when I say bird. If you want to hit pause here on the audio, you can if you're on your computer, for example. Um, what comes into your head? And then when you're back, How do I do this? Um, maybe I don't do this here. I just want to let you know that um, obviously if we were live in class, we would share those, um, what popped into your heads, and we would look for overlap in our thinking. How many of you said things like freedom? How many of you think, said things like innocence, perhaps? Did anyone say something like constraint? Did anyone say something like... Um, so we'd look for the overlap in our thinking, and try to establish, is there shared cultural understanding around the birds? Are we fitting singular, um, some overlapping ideas into the bird? But then also, where do we diverge in our thinking and our associations with the bird? And when is that because of our own distinct personal experiences, lived personal experiences? But when also is that because we have cultural knowledge or, or forms of cultural knowledge that are not overlapping? And so... We were raised um, in different communities, for example, and our differing communities associate different things with a bird. And we are, I'm saying that to you now because it becomes so very important when we're reading sacred narratives that are not our own, quote unquote, that we were not socialized into knowing, that we're not the sacred narratives that are... Um, I'm thinking in Spanish right now, our ancestors shared, um, it becomes so important to not assume that the meanings we attribute to objects, to signs, to signifiers, it becomes important to recognize that those are not um, those are not factual. Um, it is not factual to say bird means freedom because I imagine an eagle soaring on the winds, for example. Um, we need to understand symbols in their local contexts. In, inside of these narratives, we need to know um, what they meant to the people who shared the narratives, if that makes sense. And so we have to get past our own um, biases. And here maybe is where I can make a quick jump to what is cultural relativity. We can talk really quickly about perspective and then we'll come back to the readings. Um, now that I've given this lecture actually a couple of times in way too long of format, I, I think I don't mind jumping around a little bit just to speed this up. Um, so let's do that for a second. Cultural relativity. Cultural relativity in anthropology is a practice and it is... Um, an attempt when one is studying individuals in a community to, and that community is 
a community to which one does not belong or does not entirely belong. Um, it is a practice in which one goes into that community, again, so assuming one is coming from without, and tries to get past one's own understandings, one's own system of beliefs, one's norms, one's values. Can you, as a researcher and as an anthropologist, often uh, your tools are your body, they are your own um, five-ish senses and you're observing, you're participating, you're asking questions. As a researcher, you're using as much of yourself as you can to get to better know other human beings. And in contexts where those other human beings are not, um, again, of a community to which you, quote-unquote, belong, um, you need to leave everything you're taken for granted, understandings, as best you can without. You, you, the practice of cultural real, relativity is to go into a community and to try as best you can to assume the understandings, um, the values, again, the norms, the rules of those with whom you are hanging out or with whom you are working as a researcher. And it's really easy to see immediately that that practice is... Um, can be flawed, maybe always is flawed. Is it possible to leave all of yourself, um, your your cultural self, your socialized self, is it possible to leave that and to um, open-mindedly uh, try on the understandings of others? Uh, this made me think right away, Hallie, I have a question you asked. You, you were thinking specifically about the experience of um, others, of narratives, and you write, can we seek, feel, and find ourselves in the narratives of another's experience, even if it is not our own? Can we experience true sympathy, true empathy, or true understanding beneath the power of another's narrative? And so those are really important questions we're going to keep asking here this semester. But just like we're wondering if we can find ourselves in the narratives of another's experience, can we also try on um, the, the lived experience in general of another, even beyond the narrative? Is it possible to, to really um, not just get to know from without, but to try to get to know um, from almost within? And this is, again, anthropology's primary research methods really are this cultural re relativity as practice and then also something that is called participant observation. What happens when we're deep hanging out, quote unquote? What happens when we are immersed, quote unquote? Um, and, and, and how, to what extent are we able to get beyond ourselves, our social selves, when we are in these positions to become other social selves? Uh, that's okay, before I, I get too wrapped up in that, um, I want to say too, because I think this fits with what Hallie said, Eli, you wrote, what if the stories we grew up hearing had been from a different perspective? How would that have shaped the lessons we learned and carried with us and thus our actions? And I want to say that out loud because I felt like you put into words here something I've been trying to figure out how to ask that I think is really at the center of my thinking about world building in this course. Um, can we 
change the world with stories? Can we use sacred narratives um, that are cross-cultural to... Um, and, and here's where I get stumble. I stumble and say, what, are, what, are, what exactly do narratives have the power to do? Um, and I'm thinking, you guys are artists and designers and you have this great power, which is to communicate with the masses, something that anthropology students of mine don't have because they're mostly going to grow up to be... Um, and, the, and this is a problem of academia and maybe it'll change before they grow up all the way but um, anthropologists are trained to communicate with other anthropologists right? and so I'm thinking about students at Northwestern University for example that are in, a Northwest, in an anthropology department you guys have in my opinion much greater power because you're aspiring to talk across disciplines to be in communication with people um, en masse and Eli, it's so when you're asking this question, what if the stories we grew up hearing had been from a different perspective? How would that have shaped the lessons we learned? You're getting at something that's really important um, in mythology and the study of myths, and that is that functionalist thinkers, at the very least, assume that myths continue to be passed down across generations because they do something, right? They have some function. Otherwise, they wouldn't be such a core part of um, societies. And most functionalists, and I think probably you two coming in, if I say, what does a myth do? Um, I will say that to you later in this course. If you want, you can pause now and think. What, what for you, what do you think a myth does? Why, why are myths so important? Do they do something for society? Or are they just these sexy tales, um, narratives? Are they, are they just entertainment? Um, I suspect most of you will arrive at, well, myths can teach us lessons, myths can also teach us um, social rules and norms, N myths can be a very important part of, of teaching a next generation um, the values of a community, and so when Eli's asking what if the stories we grew up had been from a different perspective, I'm going to switch that a little bit to be what if they had been another set of stories? What if they had been someone else's sacred narratives? How would that have shaped the lessons we learned? Um, arguably, we would have learned different lessons. We would be carrying with us different lessons, and thus um, those lessons would inform our actions, and we would be acting differently. And that's where the reason I think this gets at, at my hazy thinking about world building through sacred narratives is Somewhere in my mind is this question, is there a way to assemble a set of narratives without misappropriating them so that we are communicating lessons to the masses, again, this is where I'm borrowing on your power as artists and designers, communicate lessons to the masses that, that do shape our actions, that shape our actions in a way that improves the world, that makes the world more socially just. Um, are there, what are the narratives that would transform our thinking and, and more specifically are relating to nature, for example, are thinking about but are relating to the natural world, for example. And, and so the first question is, what are those narratives? And the second question is, can we borrow them? Are, are we, um, and we are multicultural as a group in this classroom, and um, many of us claim 
a multiplicity of cultural cultures as singular individuals. And so it's not just one person, one culture, one community, one language, one, right? Um, the world and, and life and humanity is so much more complex than that by now. And so um, I don't have the can we or can we not borrow worked out yet. You heard that last week, but that too is going to be part of this question. Joseph, you asked about Henry Cheru, who was really trying to give voice to Paulo Freire's project and his thinking in problem-posing education. And I just want to address that quickly because you were asking about socially just world, quote-unquote, um, and you said, you know, but what does he mean by a socially just world? And this is where Freire's end goals or, or argument for education was that education needs to be foremost a project that... A, a project that um, seeks to produce a more socially just world. I don't know if produce is the right word, but that education really needs to be foremost about not educating individuals, not teaching history, for example, to individuals, but it needs to be about positioning individuals to improve the world, to make the world more just. It needs to be about helping individuals learn to learn in a way that inspires them to spend the rest of their lives learning um, and, and pushing back and ultimately reworking the social hierarchies that are not just in the world. And Joseph, your question was, you know, every person has different thoughts. Maybe his thoughts, Chirou's or Freire's thoughts for a socially just world are, are, are unique to them and don't suggest an ideal type of world. And here is where I want to say aloud to you that there are some things that I'm going to take for granted and I believe that I'm correct in doing so. You can push back and tell me you disagree. One of those things I think I am correct in doing is trusting that in fact there is such a thing, a singular thing as a quote-unquote socially just world. I'm going to say to you that in my own understanding, social justice is not one of those you see from where you stand sorts of things. It is a, it is or it is not. Um, this isn't something that I've ever heard anyone challenge Paulo Freire on, you know, hey, hey. I can tell you who he is and from where he sees. Um, he's a Brazilian man who was looking um, socialized into Brazilian culture and then hyper aware, therefore, of the polarization of wealth of individuals growing up in favelas. If you want to know what that lifestyle looks like, if you have not yet seen the movie City of God, it's a Brazilian film, um, watch City of God. It's one of the most globally renowned films to have ever come out of Brazil, though there are others, but this is, this is the one that if you're in an international film class and you're going to see a film from Brazil, City of God is almost always what you see. Um, City of God does really a great job of representing favela life in Brazil. And so what Paulo Freire was responding to was this just tremendous and, and terrifying polarization of wealth. You had, again, um, masses of impoverished peoples, quote-unquote, at the bottom of society who were just barely making it. Their children were hungry and going hungry and... Um, families were unhoused, and then you also had an elite class that was in the opposite circumstances. And so when 
Paulo Freire is writing about social justice. He's writing about a world that is anti-racist. He's writing about a world that is anti-classist. He's writing about a world that is less classed in general. And um, and I don't think, I'm, I'm sitting here saying to you, you know, do you really want to be the person that says, well, for me, social justice means I worked the hardest, so I have the most money, right? Um, I, in this myth class, we're going to be talking about American mythologies and, and ideology, shared sets of understandings, perdón, um, worldviews, sets of ideas that inform a worldview is how I'm going to talk about ideology. And there are really strong ideological understandings um, in the U.S. that support, for example, the pull yourself up by the bootstraps notion. Um, we might dare call it a myth in this class. I will let you guys decide. We'll get there. But what I want to say here is that, and I'm saying this really respectfully to all of you, there are going to be moments when I say, okay, I, I free you to think as you will, but I'm going to suggest to you that social justice isn't something that is relative. Social justice is something that is or is not. Um, I also, though, so I said that to you, and then simultaneously I want to say to you, on most other things, I'm going to say you're right. You know what we do see from where we stand. Teha tun hahe lahawi. You wrote regarding Morrison's lecture, how do you view certain aspects of this reading from different cultural perspectives? And then you noted the experience for you of hearing words like erasure, and then also in my lecture, cowboys. Um, how, how was the experience of, of thinking through um, the images and the examples that I provided in last week's podcast, for example, different based on your own lived experiences and based also on our own identities. Um, and identities, again, are complex and varied. We are multiplicities of selves. But we also occupy spaces on something that is called the quote-unquote social field. Um, and, and where we are situated in the social field is some combination of our gender identities, our sexuality identities, our race and class and ethnicity identities, right? We've got this multiplicity of identities and selves and and together they become us and 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 I, I this is gonna sound um I don't know if it'll sound juvenile but scholars uh, scholars um social scientists often think about the social field and and in my head there's this rectangle it's this space non-space rectangular space and all human beings are situated somewhere in this grid um so if you want to picture a grid you can picture a grid you don't have to but your positionality in that grid if you will, it does absolutely inform um, how you understand and what you understand. All right, again, you can see why these lectures keep getting so long. I feel like I have so much to say to you up front. That talking about perspective, point of view, needed to happen at the front of this class, and I wouldn't have thought to put it there. So thank you all of you for asking those questions. Um, now again, we're going to come back to language on another day, but let's talk about, let's go back to Morrison and Abdurraqib in particular. Shani, again, you, um, I'm going to start with your question because it gets us right into the overlap between the two articles. As I was reading, I noticed that both Nobel Lecture and The Little Devil in America had dead birds as a metaphor. What is that metaphor being used for? In Nobel Lecture, the blind woman states that the bird's death is, quote, in your hands, end quote, which has a double meaning. 
in A Little Devil in America, a boy, that boy was Hanif, held a dead bird in his open palms. Both dead birds are in hands. What do these mean? What do they symbolize? Are they doing the same things? Do they match, right? We're seeing the same image, um, the same seeming metaphor in these two different articles. Are they doing the same thing within the articles? Here's where I'm going to say to you that I want all of us to spend time all semester long reading meaning as best we can into symbols and I want us to try to read our own meanings into those symbols but then always I want us to check our own meaning making by trying to contextualize the narratives and understand how um, objects, signs, signifiers would have been understood again quote unquote locally. In this particular case I opened these with these two articles on purpose. I wanted you to see that you had these two distinct authors using that same image, an image that comes from, given um, Toni Morrison, she sets up her lecture by saying to us, this is a narrative that I've heard across cultures and, and from in many different contexts from different peoples. The way I heard it was this way. Um, but the narrative is more or less always the same. So we have a sense that this is a sacred narrative and that is that it is cross-cultural, that it is a sacred narrative that, that varies across culture, but that more or less holds the same narrative structure, um, that the takeaway at the end is more or less the same. And what I wanted you to see, and hope that you did, is that in Morrison's lecture, she opens by telling us more or less outright the narrative and then the moral as it is often posed. And that moral, I'm going to read this to you if you don't mind. Again, I'm just going back to the lecture that we looked at for last week. Um, this is the woman who's quiet and quiet and quiet and then finally she speaks and her voice is soft but stern. I don't know, she says. I don't know whether the bird you are holding is dead or alive, but what I do know is that it is in your hands. It is in your hands. And then Morrison says, her answer can be taken to mean, if it is dead, you have either found it that way or you have killed it. If it is alive, you can still kill it. Um, in a sense, that's giving great agency to the youth in this narrative. You have the power to kill or let live. Um, whatever the case, it is your responsibility, is what that woman purportedly is suggesting in the end of that, let's not say traditional, let's say this classic, seemingly um, cross-cultural telling of this narrative. And so what I really like about Morrison's use of that narrative is she says to her audience, now let's pretend that the bird is language. I didn't give you the body. We skipped all of the body because my interest here is in what Morrison is doing with the narrative. Um, but she's able to take a narrative and then say, okay, let's give a particular meaning for the sake of my argument here tonight in this Nobel lecture. Let's give this particular symbol a meaning that we agree to. Let's say the bird means language. And then she thinks all the way through that narrative um, and uses it as an excuse to interrogate the state of language in the present. Um, in the present for her was when she gave this talk in the 1990s. But what I really, really think is important and powerful and something Morrison, because she is so smart and because she is so eloquent, was able to do and it seems so just effortless is come back at the end of her argument. So she opens with a sacred narrative, gives us a new 
meaning the narrative becomes about language, right? Um, it becomes a metaphor for language. We think through that. And then she comes back at the end and says, but what if? And then she gives us this onslaught of alternative understandings, alternative morals that could have fit that same sacred narrative. And in that reworking, all of the sudden, the youth who had been positioned as kind of tricksters or as um, a little bit rogue, right? They were up to trouble. They were trying to trick or trap this blind woman who was elderly, right? They were, they were antagonists in the original moral and they learned their lesson. The wise woman taught them a lesson. All of a sudden, in Morrison's conclusion, she's repositioned them as as innocent, but also as agentive, as intentional. Um, let me read again for you that closing because I really want you and hope that you are able to pull meaning from this. And again, um, let me read first and then I'll tell you why I think this matters so much. Once upon a time, dot, 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 visitors ask an old woman a question. Who are they, these children? What did they make of that encounter? What did they hear in those final words, the bird is in your hands? A, a sentence that gestures towards possibility or one that drops a latch? Perhaps what the children heard was, it is not my problem. I am old, female, black, blind. What wisdom I have now is in knowing I cannot help you. The future of language is yours or the future of whatever the bird may represent is yours. Um, what Morrison is doing here is saying, imagine if the children instead of of being these bad guy tricksters were sincere imagine if um imagine if we stopped to see from where they stand let's use that imagine if we were to be cultural relativists and to take children seriously and to assume that that children are real thinking agentive sincere human beings who want to know if the bird is dead or alive. Why does this have to be some trick? Why does this have to be snide? Um, and then Morrison continues, they stand there, the children. Suppose nothing was in their hands. Suppose the visit was only a ruse, a trick to get to be spoken to, taken seriously as they have not been before, a chance to interrupt, to violate the adult world. It's miasma of discourse about them, right? So we have this adult world that is all-knowing and, and all-knowing, especially in regards to children. And Morrison is suddenly saying, what if these were children saying, hey, hey, we're here, notice us, pay attention to us, can you hear us? Um, I think this works really well as, as a metaphor um, for all social interaction across um, social groups in society. What does it mean to, to be able to hear um, and, and to take seriously and, and understand the power and agency of, of people who have historically been marginalized um, or not listened to or unseen? And in this case, Morrison is using children as an example. I um, I have to be careful because you also don't want to, I don't want to say that to be marginal is to be childlike, of course. Um, but we can understand children to be also a, a group of human beings who, who are repeatedly and continually and into the present marginalized. Um, Morrison continues, can someone tell us what is life? This is, is the bird we hold living or dead? Perhaps the question meant, could someone tell us what is life? What is death? 
No trick at all, no silliness, a straightforward question worthy of the attention of a wise one, an old one. And if the old and wise who have lived life and faced death cannot describe either, then who can? Um, what I think is so powerful in this lecture by Toni Morrison is that she is able to rework a narrative in a way that destabilizes, I think, all of our assumptions. It was so easy at the opening to this lecture to hear the narrative, to hear the takeaway and say, oh yes, we get it. Yep, the woman is the wise one. Um, and she left those children, you know, reflecting on, on their own power and responsibility. And instead, though, we get to the end of this lecture and all of a sudden Morrison's saying, hey, but let me tell you all of the other things that you should have been thinking about as you heard that narrative. Why were you not wondering why the children weren't taking, taken seriously? Why were you not wondering if the children could have been innocently asking and, and if their question could have had other meanings? Why were you not seeing all of those layers of possible meanings in their line of questioning? Um, and I want... So it made sense to me to use this upfront in this class because I want to say to you, you have so much power as questioners. This is, I think, so very much in fitting with problem-posing education right now. This is the um, all of us, Eric, me, all of you, become the children who are arriving with questions that, that are sincere and can be as important as what is life and what is death. But then also we are we are asking questions with an eye toward um, being responsible for building the future. Does that, that sounds vacuous and maybe too big. Um, one more thing I wanna say that Morrison does in this article, and I think it is important, is just when we've been convinced that Morrison has turned that narrative, the moral in particular, on its head and left us thinking, okay, the children were the good guys and the wise woman was the bad guy who, didn't stop to ask, who just made an assumption. Um, again, Morrison repositions the wise woman once again as a wise woman. Um, and she does that by working through all of the possible questions that these children can pose. And then she gets to a line, it's quiet again when the children finish speaking until the woman breaks into the silence. Finally, she says, I trust you now. I trust you with the bird that is not in your hands because you have truly caught it. Look how lovely it is, this thing we have done together. And so once again, that woman who had been wise but then was not wise is again wise. But not only is she wise, um, all of them collectively are wise. How lovely it is, this thing we have done together. I read that and I thought, that's what I want us to be able to walk out of this course saying. And so that's part of why this article, there are so many reasons this article is up front in this course. Um, one of you asked, what does it mean? Because you have truly caught it. Again, um, it's really easy to think to truly catch something means to really truly catch understanding. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, I'm not going to spend any time at all telling you what things mean in particular in this, uh, right? But I do want to say to you that the power of borrowing narratives and using narratives as metaphor is that you empower your readers to read their own meanings into those narratives. And then um, again, also, you empower them to go out and, and to contextualize the narratives. And so 
in one sense, you're empowering people to take their own lived experiences and values and norms and to use those to inform their understandings um, of narratives and narrative takeaways. But you're also, in a sense, providing them with opportunities to say, you know, that's a really powerful narrative and, and I know what it means for me, but now I want to go find out what it means for other people. And I think that there can be unity and unification in, in that project of, of going out and, and seeking out others' understandings of singular narratives. Um, I don't know if I sound like I'm desperately trying to wax poetic. I'm not. I'm trying to tell you that, um, <laughs> I'm trying to express to you my, my, my somewhat concerned sense that there is a way to weave stories together, to build a future, um, to affect change through story and specifically through sacred narrative. One more comment and then I will move past Toni Morrison for now on um, the decision to use a narrative that is cross-culturally relevant, um, significant. She chose a narrative that does not belong to one group of people. She chose a narrative that takes a multiplicity of forms again and exists in cross-cultural context and in a sense um, is widespread. And I think that when we can find those kinds of narratives in particular, we can feel especially confident that we won't be accused of misappropriating someone else's sacred narrative. Um, that, that accusation of appropriation becomes a little bit trickier when the narratives with which we want to work, um, if they are not our own, if they do not belong to our own people, um, when they do very specifically belong to singular groups of people, um, we'll see what happens. But that to me starts to feel a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, or at the very least, like we need to go out to find the people whose narratives we are interested in using and we need to say, hey, I'm interested in doing this with this narrative. Do you mind? That's really the solution. Um, as always, in general, in life, the solution is communication and justice and humanity and respect. All right, Toni Morrison, that was a lot. And you see again why these, art these audios got so long. Um, because I know they got too long. Hanif, what I want to say to you, what most of you picked up on was Hanif's style. And so let me focus foremost on that. Those of you, one of you in particular said, can I write like this? How can I write like this? And will my professors take me seriously? And Hanif's seemingly organic flow fits my own thinking style and, and would be writing style if I didn't think my professors wouldn't accept such a thing or, or professionals to whom I, or for whom I'm writing in the future. I am going to, in this course, work as best I can, as hard as I can with and for you to help you um, find tones and voices with which you want to write, in which you want to write, just like we are each a multiplicity of selves in our daily lives, we can also be a multiplicity of selves in written text. Eric and I had a good conversation Monday, yesterday, about this, and Eric says, you know, I'm reading literatures for my own thesis work that are really formal and that are still very academic ease-y, and there is this argument that to, you know, I don't know, be taken seriously amongst French theorists, you need to write in this style. I, my, my own thought is that that is no longer so true. 
Um, but again, I need Eric here really to defend his own side of this. I My convictions are that increasingly um, find a tone, find a voice that allows you to feel present in your writing, in your thinking, um, in your arguing from within your writing and or presenting from within your writing and, and own that and experiment with that. Hanif, I think, does that really beautifully and that's why we read him and we like him as a person. And we also, um, one of you noted that in the opening to his book, he doesn't use any punctuation in that first subsection. And you read that in a particular way. You read that almost without stopping to take a breath. And so the experience of reading that is distinct. Um, those are things all of you can do via writing. And nobody said, hey, hey, Hanif, you forgot to put punctuation into that um, opening subsection of your book, you know. Um, what happens is I think that as you find the tone and voice that you want to own, um, or the tones and voices you want to own as authors, you'll, you also will become more confident in breaking the rules and, and knowing that your professors will understand that that's precisely what you are doing, you are breaking the rules. Um, so let me not belabor that here, but that's going to be something I continue to come back to. What I can tell you here that is important is after spending a long time reading and rereading your responses to the survey, I have decided um, we do a psychoanalytic analysis of a myth and we also do a functionalist analysis of a myth in this course. I'm going to shorten both of those projects. The psychoanalytic project is always a list. Anyways, we're not writing a psychoanalytic essay. Um, we're putting together an analysis of symbols. So you're going to pick out the symbols from your myth and then you're going to suggest like what meanings Freud would see in those symbols. But the functionalist essay is in fact an essay. It's a research-based essay. That was going to be a three-week-long project and 2,000 words. That's now going to be a two-week-long project and 1,000 words. I've shortened the number of sources. I'm not taking away from that experience. For those of you that do love research, know that it's still a research project and I think you're still really going to enjoy it. Um, but what that does is for the half of the class that is really unsure about research and writing, about how much they like or do not like research and writing, let's say, for that half of the class, then what I'm able to do is is use, add, add in some other, a little bit more experimental um, assignments, a little bit more playful, if you will, than essay assignments. And so they're still going to be about thinking critically. They're still, I think, going to be really useful to us in this project that is, for me, foremost, about potentiating world building. Um, the one of you that said, do I mean in a fantasy sense or do I mean in a real sense? I hope by now it is clear to you that I mean in a real sense. Like, can we really do something to make the world a better place while we're here studying sacred narratives? Um, and if so, how? But anyways, um, so so know that that's coming. I, I know that you're used to, I think that you're used to going into classes and everything's mapped out. I do that. But then what happens is as I get to know my students, I'm really quick to adapt what I've got. So um, there's some adapting coming your way and I think it's for the best and I think all of you, regardless of your relationship and, and feelings about relationship to and feelings about research are going to appreciate it. All right, let me go forth. Um, 
I'm going to open up again some questions just to make sure. I do want to talk, um, those of you who asked about human nature, why are people continually trying new things? For example, helping things like wounded animals. That was Max. Um, and then also Jojo, you asked, why do people have such a desperate need to understand what is it about the way that we are that necessitates understanding everything we can? Those are really interesting questions. I'm going to say to you here that in general, in, in philosophers like to ask why, anthropologists like to ask how. So instead of asking why are people continually trying new things, I would ask how are people continually trying new things. I think that's a more answerable question. Um, also, instead of why do people have such a desperate need to understand, it's how do people have such a need to understand. Um, and that doesn't take for granted the people do. I, I, when you ask why questions, you're always also automatically asking the inverse. And so, Yo-Yo, for example, when you ask why do people have this need to understand, I'm immediately thinking, hmm... I've got some friends that really just are past that need to understand in life in general. And it has sometimes to do with mental health and sometimes just to do with um, how much else they have to do. And um, I, I feel like I can start to name individuals that maybe don't have such a desperate need to understand, right? And so that why question implies that this is a universal thing. Um, the how question instead frees us just to focus on, okay, we see a lot of people in the world who really maybe even desperately seem to need to understand things. Um, what is it? What is it about us as humans? Um, also, what is it about our society? What is it about our access to Google? What is it about? We can start to break that apart and, and explore um, what it is, what is the relationship between humanity and, and wanting or needing to understand. And we can do the same thing, Max, on caring or, or helping, trying new things and also helping or caring for things, including animals, also including other people. Um, so that's really what I wanted to say. That and then also, I um, will almost always, when you ask questions that are about people universally, my response is almost always to say, okay, but that's not a universal, right? I can think of an exception, like I just did above and thinking um, through Yo-Yo's line of question, but can I think of an exception? I can think of an exception. As a social scientist, I tend to privilege the nurture side, as I said, of the nurture-nature debate. And so when things seem to you like we are this way because we are naturally this way and we are instinctually this way and we were made this way, Almost always I'm going to come back and say, okay, that's possible, but they haven't yet found a gene, for example, for desperate need to understand. They haven't yet found a gene for continually trying on new things. Um, and so for as long as they haven't found some sort of genetic underpinning that suggests these things are encoded in us, I'm going to say, you know what, at least as likely those things were socialized into us. And let's think about processes of socialization that make us, some of us, this way and others of us another way, for example. Um, can we think of contexts where people are socialized in a way um, that they do not have a desperate need to understand? I can name those cases. I'm not going to do that here. But there are also contexts, um, sometimes private sphere contexts, particular family structures um, and organizations of power and hierarchy that leave individuals positioned within a family uninterested in asking questions and even unaware that they have the right or, or the ability to ask questions. And that also happens at a societal level. Again, let me not belabor that. 
I said really what I wanted to say. You guys had so many more questions about Morrison and Hanif that I'm not getting to, but I also am at the length I wanted this to be. I um, want to say to you, oh wait, next week we're going to start with a game and that game in my next week's um, content is going to begin with, um, is this a myth or not? It's going to be our game. I'm also going to call that game, what is a ritual anyway? We'll start there because I've given you a lot of content already for this week. Know that the readings for this week are meant to show you. I don't teach readings because they speak truths. Sometimes to me, they seem like they speak wisdom. I think Toni Morrison and Hanif Abdurraki both speak wisdom. I think they're very wise um, and we can learn from them. Next week's readings um, are more about seeing into problematic past practices. So we're going to look at 101-year-old science just quickly so you can see what that anthropology of mythology looked like in the beginnings. I want you also, though, to think about how artists were doing very much the same things that anthropologists were doing 100 years ago. And then um, Lutz and Collins, I really like Jane Collins as an anthropologist, and Catherine Lutz, and that article on National Geographic that we're looking at for this week is it, it's a little bit dated, that book came out in the 90s, um, but the argument hasn't changed and I would even pose to you or, or ask that you ask as you're reading it, have things really changed? Um, we're more likely to read things online now, maybe we have fewer National Geographic magazines sitting around on coffee tables because we have fewer magazines sitting around on coffee tables, but think about how we represent multiculturalism in photography, think about, and, and not we, maybe I shouldn't incriminate us in this. Think about how in, um, I, I don't know, on the History Channel, on National Geographic Channel, on, think about in these spaces that supposedly celebrate diversity and multiculturalism. Think about ways in which imagery works or does not work to reinforce social hierarchies and understandings that that um, other people of color, that other, um, it, it, it's so much more than just people of color, um, that people of um, lower and working classes, that other people of alternative gender identities, um, think about how imagery can reinforce the injustices of our society and think also about how imagery can counter those injustices. Um, last week I titled the work Seeing Without Pictures. This week we're really seeing with pictures. All right, um, I hope that you have a really great week. I um, apologize for this being so long. I am going to try to keep these podcasts tight and I'm already really excited to come back next week and to talk to you more concretely about meanings of myth, meanings of ritual, um, what counts, what doesn't count, what are we going to count, and then also just to talk through um, the history of mythology as a practice, as a scientific practice, and, and, and even as an artistic practice. All right, that's what I want to say. I hope you have great weeks and we're in touch. I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you all for all of your great questions last week. Cheers and ciao.